Good morning, wherever you are joining us from this morning. Uh, we hope you're well, and we're just so grateful that you've chosen to join with us uh, today to worship. A couple of things I want to mention to you before we look into the scriptures. About a year ago, we came to you as a church and mentioned that uh, Wes Bennett, our student ministry pastor, uh, informed us that he wanted to move from a paid position in student ministry to a volunteer position in student ministry. We started a year-long national search for a new student ministry pastor, but even as we were doing the search, we had the sense that there was a better option uh, right here under our nose. Well, about, uh, about a month or so ago, we went to our part-time director of children's ministry, Jeanette Allen, and we asked her if she would be willing to consider moving from a part-time position to a full-time position and oversee everything from birth through high school. She agreed. And so we're in the enviable position now of having one person who's going to oversee everything from birth through high school. Many churches would love to be in that situation. In addition to that, we have someone who is as fantastic as Jeanette working for us full time. She's going to be hiring a part-time person to help her do children's ministry. She'll be hiring a part-time person to focus on junior high ministry and then one also to focus on senior high ministry. We think this is, as I said a moment ago, the best possible of all outcomes. We're so excited about this. And so if you would, please uh, congratulate Jeanette. If you know Jeanette, congratulate her on her new position and uh, be praying for her as she moves into this and as she begins planning for the future. Second thing I want to mention to you. I want to do something uh, different after I finish this series. We're going to finish this series next week. But after that, I want to start a series on topics that you would like to hear me preach on. So I'm going to call this a Create Your Own Sermon Series. If you have a topic, a theme, a subject that you would like to hear me preach on, if you would, please email it to me. You can email it to me at uh, jeff at citychurchevv.com. And if you would, just send me, as I said, one topic, something you'd like to hear me preach on, and I'm going to try to take the top three or four of those and uh, create a sermon series out of that that will follow this series that we've been in. And speaking of this series, if you have a Bible, if you would, please turn with me in it to the 23rd Psalm, Psalm 23, and we're going to continue the series that we've been in called Fear No Evil. There's an old story about an angry Jewish man who saw a rabbi walking along the street in Jerusalem. And so he stopped the rabbi and he began to rant to him about his suffering. And every time the rabbi would try to interject and tell him something, give him a piece of advice, the man would reject it and just keep going. And so the rabbi, the rabbi restrained himself and just listened to the man for four hours. For four hours he listened to this man rant and rave. And then at the end of the four hours, he asked the man, why are you so angry at God? And the man was stunned by this question because nothing that he had said in the last four hours mentioned God at all. And he said to the rabbi, he said, all my life I've been so afraid to express my anger toward God that I've taken it out on people who are connected with God in some way. And I never understood that until you just asked me that question about why I'm so angry at God. Well, the rabbi stood up and he, and he asked the man to walk uh, to follow him, and so he walked to the, uh, uh, to the temple in Jerusalem, to the, old, to the wailing wall there in Jerusalem. And he said to the man, he said, take out all of your anger on God right here. And the man began to just pound the wailing wall, and he screamed and all of his anger at God. And then his anger began to turn to sobs, and then his sobs began to turn to cries. 
And then his cries began to turn to prayers. And the story ends with this line. And that's how the rabbi taught the man how to pray. You may or may not be uh, aware of this, but the Psalms were the hymn book of ancient Israel. In other words, uh, the Psalms were the songs that they sang in their worship, both uh, public and private. And almost immediately when you begin to read the Psalms, you notice that there's a stark difference between ancient Israel's prayers and worship and modern evangelical worship. Namely, that our worship tends to eliminate a great deal of the full range of human emotions. Most of the songs that we sing on any given Sunday are upbeat and happy. But roughly half of the psalms are songs of lament, protest, even complaints to God about the apparent incoherence of the world. Some of them are full of anger. The world's uh, foremost expert on the Psalms, a scholar by the name of Walter Brueggemann, was once asked about why the Psalms were full of such raw emotion. And he said this, he said, he said, because life is like that, and these songs are intended to speak to all of life, not just part of it. The 23rd Psalm begins with some of the most beautiful, peaceful descriptions of God's care of His people in all of the Bible. We've been looking at that over the course of the last few weeks. But life isn't always beautiful and peaceful. I want to start reading again at verse 1 of the 23rd Psalm, and I think you'll see uh, what I mean. Verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures, He leads me Beside quiet waters, he refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What just happened? I don't know if you noted, what just, what just happened? I feel like as I read this psalm that I just experienced a kind of emotional whiplash, like I've just been on a roller coaster. We were just at the top of a mountain sprawling about in warm, uh, sunlit, green pastures, drinking from quiet waters, being refreshed and restored, and now with virtually no warning whatsoever. In the span of, of a half of a verse, we're suddenly in the valley of death. How did that happen? I think we need to just acknowledge that that's a pretty accurate description of how quickly the circumstances of our lives can change. It's Wednesday morning, let's say. You wake up in a great mood. It's spring, the sun is shining, the birds are chirping. You couldn't feel better about the day ahead. And then at 3.57 p.m., and by the way, you know it's 3.57 p.m. because you saw it on your phone just before the phone went off, and you remember that. At 3.57 p.m., your entire world changes. Someone that you love has been in an accident. Someone you love has had a stroke. The boss just told you out of the blue that you're being laid off. It can happen so fast sometimes your mind can't even keep up. Your words are coming at you so fast. You even say some words, but when you hang up, you're in emotional shock because the descent from the mountaintop to the valley happens so quickly that you can't even process it all in the moment. That's, 
That's really what's happened to America in the last few months. We were cruising along as a country, the economy humming at a record pace, unemployment the lowest it's ever been. In February, more than 159 million Americans were employed. And then just five weeks later, one in six Americans have filed for unemployment. The economy is virtually shut down. Summer vacations canceled, schools closed, churches closed. And we're sheltering in place. And just like that, everything changed. Mountaintop to dark valley. And you see, that's, what, that's what's da- what David is trying to express in this very rapid descent in the span of a half of a verse. All of the things that we cling to for a sense of security and control are really just illusory. Life can pull the rug out from underneath you in a split second. If you were, if you were with us last week, you might remember that last week's sermon, I said, was, was really a two-part sermon. We talked last week about this very thing, the, the illusion of control. And that's the point of the sheep-shepherd metaphor that David uses in verse 1. Sheep are not in control of themselves. They require more meticulous care than any other form of livestock. They are extremely vulnerable animals. And the Bible uses this sheep metaphor to describe human beings over 200 times. We're like sheep. We're way more vulnerable than we know. Not in control of our lives. In fact, it's the illusion of control that often creates so much stress, anxiety, and fear in our lives. But we said, too, that this sheep-shepherd metaphor is also intended to convey to us that the God who is in control, Yahweh, longs to care for us. And we saw last week in the first three verses that the way that He uh, cares for us is that he, he, He wants to give us rest. He says, David says, I lack nothing. And then he talks about green pastures and and quiet waters. All of this is rest. Maybe you could use the word contentment. Besides rest, God also longs to take care of you by giving you leadership. All of the verbs in this psalm are uh, God takes the initiative in all of this psalm. He makes me lie down. He leads me. He guides me leadership. He's not driving us from behind. He's out in front of us. Nothing catches him by surprise. He owns tomorrow. He owns the next day. And he owns the same day next year. And then we saw that he also wants to give us restoration. He refreshes. Actually, the better translation of that word, refreshes, is the word restores. He restores our soul. No matter what's been done to us, no matter what we have done, no matter what we do, we, we never have to fear that we are ruined, that our lives are ruined, because God is a master restoration artist, always bringing us back to the purpose that He has for our lives. Well, as I said, last week's sermon was the first of two, and I want to I continue along this same theme of how God wants to care for you. I want to show you two more ways that God longs to care for you. The fourth way is by giving you guidance. Guidance. Look at the last part of verse 3. The text says that he guides me along the right. Better translation for this word right is righteous. He guides me along righteous paths for his name's sake. What this verse is, is pointing to 
is God's providence over all of life. Nothing happens to you outside of God's providence. There's this idea that I have noticed over the years that many people have that God's providence means that He will always protect us from painful outcomes. In other words, the girl that you ask out will say yes. The job that you interview for will come through or it won't. But if it doesn't come through, it's because God was protecting you from a bad outcome. And that's true sometimes. Sometimes that's what God does. Sometimes He intervenes to keep something bad from happening, happening to us. But please do notice that the connector between the first part of this psalm, the mountaintop experiences, the sunlit green pastures, and the cool, refreshing waters that we all long for, the first two verses, the connector between those verses and then verse 4 is this really, this half a verse about God's guidance down righteous paths for His namesake. An author and a psychologist by the name of Larry Crabb once wrote this. He said, following Christ is a wild adventure full of risk, frustration, excitement, and setbacks. And he said, it is not an evening stroll in a planned community along a well-manicured path. And I would, I would amend what he said there slightly by saying that sometimes it is an evening stroll in a planned community, along a well-manicured path with beautiful green grass and restful water fountains in front of the homes. Sometimes that is the path down which God guides me. But sometimes He guides me in His righteousness, and this is David's point here, into a dark valley. He allows something very, very painful to enter into my life, a divorce for example, that you didn't want but your spouse did, the loss of a child, the loss of a job, a virus that takes the world by surprise, and we're often very confused by that. Why would he do that? And the answer is here in this little sort of half a verse. He guides me along righteous paths, and it says, for his name's sake, in other words, so that he gets the glory. And I want to say it this way so that you can remember it. Sometimes God guides you into the right place that feels like the wrong place so that the right person can get the glory. Sometimes God guides you into the right place that feels like the wrong place so that the right person can get the glory. Maybe you're in a situation right now in which it feels like you're hemmed in and socked in from every angle and there's no way out of it. You don't no one you know has an answer to how to get out of this. You don't have an answer. You have no idea how you're ever going to get out of this situation. It feels like a, feels like a dark valley to you. And when, you're, and when you're in a dark valley like that, all, all you can think about is how, to, is how you're going to get out of it. God, get me out of here. You get, you get fatigued. You get exhausted. You lose perspective. You can't sleep at night. You lose hope. You begin to think, I I'm never going to get out of this. And I know that because I've, I've been there. But here's a word of hope. Sometimes God guides you into the right place that feels like the wrong place so that the right person can get the glory. So that it will be obvious to you and to everyone else you had nothing to do with your delivery. 
Sometimes you find yourself in places that are such a mess that only God could have created them and only God can get you out. I think it's, it's, it's highly likely that as David writes this, he's thinking about a particular moment in the history of Israel. Uh, in this moment, the nation of Israel is in Egypt. They are slaves to the most powerful man and the most powerful kingdom in the world at that time, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And there's no way for them to get out. God sends Moses to speak to Pharaoh, and he says, he says to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, well, what does he say? You, 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 you probably remember what he says. He says no, over and over and over. He keeps saying no. Finally, after God brings plague after plague after plague after plague upon Pharaoh and his people, Pharaoh finally relents, and he says yes. And so the people of Israel pack up in uh, the middle of the night, and they leave Egypt. The book of Exodus tells us, I want you to watch this, I want you to watch what it says. It says, so God guided the people around by the desert road toward uh, the Red Sea. Problem. Here's a problem. They're camped on the edge of the Red Sea. There are no bridges over the Red Sea in that day. And suddenly, suddenly they hear from the direction that they had come from, horses and Pharaoh's army. Pharaoh's changed his mind, and his entire army is coming after them. They're hemmed in on one side by the Red Sea, and on the other side by Pharaoh's army. God had guided them to this place. Righteous path? Righteous path? It doesn't feel like that to the Israelites. People were in such despair that they turned on Moses, and they asked him, what have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? Did you bring us out here to die? But what happens next? Do you remember? You remember what happens next? In a miracle that only God could do, he delivers the people of Israel by parting the Red Sea in front of them. And the text says that all of the people walked on dry land to the other side. Now, it's not just that God parted the sea. That was miraculous enough. But think about it. Anyone ever stand? Have you ever stood on the bottom of, of the ocean? Or maybe a lake even? Have you ever stood on the bottom of an ocean or a lake? What's it like? What are you standing on? It's not dry land. It's muddy. If God forgot the dry land, the people would have gotten stuck in the mud, and Pharaoh would have wiped them all out. But God dried the bottom of the sea, too. And guess who got the glory for this? Not Israel's Army Corps of Engineers. They didn't build a bridge. They didn't get the glory. Moses didn't part the sea. He didn't get the glory. Sometimes God guides you into the right place that feels very much like the wrong place, so that the right person, God, can get the glory, so that you and everyone you know sees the awesome power of God. And sometimes that's the situation we find ourselves in, hemmed in, socked in, no answers, no solutions, such a mess that only God can get us out of it. And He does sometimes, so that He gets the glory, not you, not your talent, not your money, not your giftedness, not your friends. Only God could get you out of it. But we also need to acknowledge that sometimes God doesn't get us out of it. Like this isn't prosperity theology here. Uh, when my younger brother, uh, who's a follower of Christ, when he was about 37 years old, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. He's in his late 50s now, and the disease is slowly but surely taking its toll on his body. I, I've 
prayed and prayed and prayed that he would be healed. He's prayed that he would be healed. Friends and other family members have prayed that he would be healed. We've prayed for a medical cure. We've prayed for a miracle. And there hasn't been one. I don't know why. C.S. Lewis once made the comment that when we get to heaven, the first words out of our mouth are going to be, of course. Like, like it will all make sense then. But sometimes we have no idea here in this life why things are the way they are. Here we are as a city, as a state, as a nation, as a world, sheltering in place from a virus for which we have no vaccine, not even any therapeutics to treat it. And we're talking about uh, opening up the country and going back to work and, and opening restaurants and all, all of the risk that's involved. Why? Why would God let something like this happen? Sometimes God guides you in, into the right place that feels very much like the wrong place so that the right person can get the glory. Even when he doesn't come through in the way we want him to, he can still get the glory. How? How could God possibly get glory if he doesn't come through by protecting us from painful circumstances? Well, watch this. Here's the, here's the fifth way. Here's the fifth way that God longs to take care of you. He longs to give you peace. He says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He's talking here about peace in the midst of the darkest valleys through what? Well, he's talking about peace through the darkest valleys through the shepherd's presence and the shepherd's protection. The staff that that David describes here in this psalm, you've probably seen it depicted before in places, I'm sure. It was a long rod with a curve uh, at the top. It's what the shepherd would use to kind of, uh, it was like a crook. It was like, it was like what the shepherd would use to pull sheep back into safety if they slipped or if they fell. The shepherd was always aware of where his sheep were watching out for their well-being and their safety at all times. The rod, on the other hand, was a club that hung from the shepherd's belt. It had nails in it to fight off predators that would harm the sheep. Nothing could get to the sheep without going through the shepherd. I don't know if you've noticed, I don't know if you saw it, but there's something that changes in verse 4 from all of the other verses before it. I don't know if you noticed it, but it's the, it's, it's the pronouns. In all of the, the, the verses that came before this, the descriptions of what God does are always in the third person. He makes, He leads, He refreshes, He guides, but it changes here in verse 4. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you, not he. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Let me put it this way. Propositional truth, which is what the Bible is given in, propositional truth often becomes personal truth in the midst of life's darkest valleys. I said last week that there are longings in your soul that can only come to the surface through suffering. And one of those longings that everyone has is a longing for someone who loves them who will never abandon them. You have that longing. A longing for someone who loves you but will never abandon you. And you know, here's the thing. 
people will abandon you. Sometimes you'll find that even the people who are your closest friends will abandon you in the midst of suffering because it's frightening to watch someone suffer. It reminds us of the illusions of control that we live with. Some of you own businesses, and through this whole coronavirus thing, you may feel that your customers have abandoned you. Some of you have lost jobs. Your employer has abandoned you. People will abandon you. But the promise of this verse is that God never will. Whether it's something, whether it's a dark valley that your own sin brought down on you, whether it's something that someone else has done to you, whether it's a a virus that has you sheltered in place, the promise here is that God never abandons His own. But how could you ever know that you have a God like that who would never abandon you? How could you ever know that you have a God like that unless you go through a dark valley? I mentioned this last week, too, that I've met many people over the years who've told me that while they wouldn't ever want to go through the trial they went through again, they don't ever want to do it over, they've told me that they sensed the presence and the peace of God with them in a way that they never could have otherwise except through that trial. And you see, that's how God gets the glory, even when He doesn't prevent pain from entering our lives. Even when he doesn't come through in the way that we want him to or think he would or expect him to, he can still get the glory. He still gets the glory because we experience the beauty of his love for us all the way through it. When you go through suffering and pain, it is, it's so easy to think, God has abandoned me. I've done something wrong that he's punishing me for. He's, he's, he's angry with me. He's left me to fend for myself. But the assurance of this verse is that our circumstances are not an indicator of the shepherd's presence. Even in the midst of the darkest valleys in life, even in the midst of the valley of death, he walks with us through them to the other side. Now, how can you know that? How can you be so sure of that? If you're, if you're, maybe you're in the midst of something right now beyond just this coronavirus, and you're wondering, how in the world can I be so sure of something like this? Yes, that's, the Bible says it's true. It's a propositional truth. How can, I be, how can I be sure that God is with me through this? And if the Bible were like any other religious text, it would say something like this, and then it would just ask you to believe it simply because it says it. The Bible's not like any other religious text. Christianity is not like any other world religion. We're not asked to just believe a propositional truth. The Bible personalizes this propositional truth in the person of Jesus who calls himself the Good Shepherd. You know, Jesus could have avoided, think about this, Jesus could have avoided the suffering of the cross. He could have chosen not to be crucified for your sins and for mine. He could have stopped all of the torture that he experienced. He could have stopped eternal justice from all coming down on his head. But in the greatest act of love in human history, he stayed on the cross. Satan threw his worst at Christ to get him to abandon us, but he stayed through that. In fact, so that we would never have to be abandoned by God, Jesus was abandoned by God on the cross. Remember, he cries out, you remember this? He cries out on the, God, on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
When you're tempted to think in these days that God has abandoned you, when you're tempted to fear, you have to personalize the truth of the 23rd Psalm. But the way that you do that is by looking at the person of Jesus on the cross. Because if the good shepherd didn't abandon you there on the cross, he's not going to abandon you now. No matter what it feels like right now, no matter how bad it gets, the good shepherd is with you. That's where peace comes from. The cross of Christ reminds me that he will always be present with me, even in the darkest valleys of life. But it also reminds me, it reminds me too, that the rod of justice that was brought down upon Jesus protects me from the utter abandonment that I deserve because of my sins. Personalize the truth of this psalm through the person of Jesus. Remind yourself that what he did for you on the cross means that he will never abandon you. That's where peace comes from, even in the darkest valleys. You have not and you never will be abandoned by the good shepherd who longs to give you guidance along righteous paths. Sometimes he puts you in right places that feel very much like wrong places so that the right person can get the glory. And he longs to give you peace by his presence and his protection. He never abandons you. Go back to the cross. Go back to Jesus on a cross, being crucified for your sins. Personalize this through the cross and through the person of Jesus. That's where peace comes from from what Christ did for us there. If he did that for us, he will never, ever abandon us. Would you bow with me for prayer? Lord Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, we thank you for this truth that you will never, ever abandon us. Thank you so much for what you've done for us on the cross and the fact that it is not just the way to be saved, but it is also the basis for our relationship with you forever. And it is the reassurance that you will never, ever abandon us. Or there are people that may be listening to this, that may be in earshot of this, may be watching this, that have never understood this about, about you, that you have loved us so much that in the person of Jesus you died on the cross for our sins so that we could have eternal life. Some people think that it's... Uh, the next life is dependent upon how good they are in this life. Lord, would you speak to them today uh, through the medium of technology and convey to them that what happens in the next life is dependent upon our belief in Jesus and who He is and how good He was, not how good we are. And would you bring them to the place that they would bring their lives before Him and make him the Lord and the Savior of their lives. And it's in Christ's name that we pray these things. 